We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Lucy Cook, the zoologist, best selling author, and documentary filmmaker, discusses her new book that's asking questions about how the animal kingdom and the human one approaches issues of sex, gender, and what it all means from both a scientific and sociological perspective. Our host for today's conversation is the science broadcaster, author and physicist, Helen Chersky. Here's Helen with more. Now, for those of us who are female, the patriarchy is many things. Bossy, obstructive, insidious, constraining and sometimes actively violent. But most frustrating of all, it's apparently universal. You don't have to dig very deep to find an easy justification. We're told that this is a fundamental law of nature. Women are weaker, submissive and monogamous, while men are dynamic exploratory risk takers who will sleep with whoever they can get. And it's all because of eggs and sperm and reproductive success and evolution. And this apparently scientific explanation goes all the way back to Charles Darwin. And so it's been providing easy cover for 150 years to men who would prefer to see themselves as superior rather than equal. Now, the problem with this outlook is that scientifically, it's complete hogwash, even though the science itself has hidden that pretty well. The place to look for the extensive evidence that debunks it is in the animal kingdom. And Lucy Cook, who is joining us today, says it's time to pay attention to it. Lucy is a zoologist, explorer and author, and she is aiming to set the record straight with her new book, which is called Bitch. Her research has taken her from Madagascar to Peru, and she's tracked down moles, meerkats and killer whales to dispel these biological myths around passivity and weakness and submissiveness. This is going to be a lively podcast. So We'll be talking about what science really tells us about female behaviour across the animal kingdom, or maybe that should be queendom, and what it means for our own society. So welcome to Intelligence Squared, Lucy. Hello, Helen. What a fantastic intro. Thank you so much. So let's begin at the beginning. What got you started on this track? 
I studied zoology at uh, university and was always pretty dispirited by the message that was given, which was that females were, in the words of Richard Dawkins, my tutor, fundamentally exploited, you know, across the animal kingdom as a result of making eggs instead of making sperm. We were the feminine footnote to the macho main event and I, I found it depressing and dispiriting and it also just didn't make any sense to me on a fundamental level I just was like well if all the males are promiscuous and the females are all chase who the hell are all the males having sex with anyway how does that work out so I guess it's something that's troubled me for a long time and um, sexual selection was my favorite subject at university so in a way uh, it, this is my sort of update of, of, uh, of what I learned back then well we'll dig into some of it now one thing that I think is probably quite important to make clear quite early is just to reiterate the difference between sex and gender because you're talking about the animal kingdom but of course humans are animals so just run that the sex and gender thing for us yeah that, that's fantastic that you brought that up Helen because it is it's really important to remember this that in animals most scientists would agree that animals don't have gender and that gender is a is a social psychological human construct um, and so when we talk about male or female in the animal kingdom scientists are talking about sex and sex refers to what gametes are produced, whether they are eggs or sperm. That's very clear. And it will, I mean, we'll talk later that even those definitions have, there's some nuances there, but but that's a good, it's a good starting point. Let's go back to the beginning of all of this, because one of the things that really struck me reading the book was that you go back to Darwin's original work a lot. And obviously Darwin, whenever evolution comes up, everyone references Darwin. It's almost as though you have to. But relatively few people, I think, have actually really read it. And actually you make it clear that challenging him is still to boot, even though, I mean, I think On the Origin of Species was published in 1859, which is a long time ago. I mean, it would be amazing if he'd got everything right, uh, or we still agreed with everything, but that's still challenging. What was it like, first of all, to read Darwin, you know, the originals, and what were his views on sex in the animal kingdom? He's a very good read, you know, <laughs> actually. So I reread The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, which is the book that, that outlines his theory of sexual selection. He hints at it in On the Origin of Species, but but he actually really goes to town with it in The Descent of Man. And so you can tell I've not read my Darwin first from that. <laughs> so he goes into sort of fantastic detail of you know, substantiating his argument, which The Descent of Man, there's a lot of it that's, that's actually about humans, as you can tell from the title, The Descent of Man, and uh, it, which is something that I don't go into because I think it's really problematic to draw massive conclusions from the animal kingdom with regards to humans. It's only in some cases that I do, but he really uses this idea of sexual selection and The Descent of Man to justify the differences that he sees that are within Victorian society between the sexes. And he actually concludes that man has become superior to woman as a result of the force of sexual selection. And it's quite shocking to read the book because not only is it clearly sexist, but also it's deeply racist in paces as well. I mean, so I found it, you know, I mean, Darwin's a massive hero of mine. I studied evolutionary biology it's my favourite subject. It's my religion. But um, I was shocked at actually rereading how culturally biased the work is, you know, and, and that really struck me that, my God, if someone who's as brilliant as Darwin and as meticulous and careful as a scientist, that even he can be swayed by the opinions of the time, then that means that we all have to really look at our, how cultural bias influences us. 
And you make it clear in the book that the this bias has it's been well passed on, you know, through down down generations of biologists. So just set out for us this thing about females being weaker and submissive and males being stronger and more dynamic and all that kind of thing. What's the biological argument that has been made for that? What's the starting point for all of this? Well, funnily enough, I did trace it all the way back to Aristotle, actually, who's the first person to describe females as passive and males as active. And then Darwin sort of ran with that a bit more. And and what it comes down to is this disparity between our sex cells is that females produce limited amount of large energy expensive eggs and males produce lots of mobile sperm. And Darwin, actually, he had a sense that this was the reason behind the disparity between the sexes, but he couldn't actually prove it. It was only later, it was actually in the 1940s, it was a a chap called Angus Bateman, who was actually a a plant, uh, who was a botanist, in fact. He did this, what's now legendary experiment using fruit flies to basically seek empirical support for Darwin's sexual stereotypes. And... So he, he did this experiment where he, he bred lots of different fruit flies with different mutations. And then because they had these different mutations, he was able to infer who had mated with whom. And he then produced this graph that, from his results, which basically, in inverted commas, proves that males have everything to gain from mating with multiple females and females have nothing to gain. And this graph is the stuff of legend. I mean, it appears in every single um, textbook on evolutionary biology. I mean, Bateman's paper is, I, I believe, the most cited paper in sexual selection. Um and because it, it was assumed in the 1970s by Robert Trivers, who used it as the key piece of evidence for his theory of parental investment, which really bolstered the sort of the modern wave of this idea that males are promiscuous and, and, and drive sexual selection, that male promiscuity and competitiveness drive sexual selection and, and males are more susceptible to sexual selection and, and females aren't. They just, they aren't affected by it so much. And that's why, you know, Dawkins writes about it in The Selfish Gene, obviously that came out in the 1970s. And then that's where the sort of the trajectory of this thinking comes from. And has been challenged really since the sort of since I'd say the late 70s and, and early 80s has been increasingly challenged by a wave of scientists, many of whom are female, but not all. And not all those challenges have been accepted. And some of them have been criticised for being ideological, which strikes me as, as slightly strange. I have to say, I find it fascinating that something that was an experiment done in the 1940s wasn't repeated. I mean, we talk about science reproducibility in science, and certainly, I mean, I'm a physicist, so it's perhaps a bit easier sometimes to repeat things in physics because you just press the button on the machine again, in a way. You know, sometimes you have to build a different machine, but did nobody repeat it? Did nobody check? (laughs) Yes, they did. That's the thing. People don't know about it. This is the absolutely astonishing thing that one of many that I found out but I just really made me angry actually really angry because Patricia Goati is is an extraordinary scientist her science is brilliant but she is a feminist right she's very open about that so she 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 you know she she is her science is ideologically driven but that doesn't mean to say that her science is anything less than perfect so she decided because 
she'd done a number of experiments previously with animal behaviour and she could see with her own eyes that, that Bateman's paradigm, this graph, just didn't apply to the animal kingdom as she understood it. So she thought, well, what am I going to do? I'm just going to replicate that experiment. As you say, replication is the basis. You know, let's just check if this incredibly important seminal experiment actually is, is correct. I just have to pause you there to note your use of language because that's where this is where seminal comes from, right? It's actually baked into our language that the most important thing is the sperm, right? And you just did I it yourself because that. this is how we do that, right? I did I did it as a joke, but I, but that's like that, that, that's unbelievable. I didn't know that that's where seminal came from. I think from. Well, it that is. Really... I, that the linguists right. may oh, well. No, no, I defer no, no, no. to the linguists, but that's worth worth us checking. Anyway, carry on. Seminal that experiments. Really... Off you go. Anyway, so. So Patricia Goati, she um, she spent basically 10 years taking a forensic scalpel to Bateman's study. And as she'll say, she knows Bateman's study better than anybody else. And actually, she replicated, she went to the bother of finding exactly the same strains of fruit fly that uh, Bateman used and replicating his methodology. She's even dug up his original lab notes in order to decipher his own data. And she just found any number of, of flaws, both in his methodology and the way that he collated his results and just scream confirmation bias. You know, she says she doesn't like to be mean about it because he's dead now, but he didn't do a good job. He just set out to, to substantiate what Darwin had said, and he did a very good job of that. But, you know, for example, he pulled the results. So that famous graph that's replicated everywhere, he did something like sort of eight experiments, and that's only the results of two of them. The six other six experiments produce a very different graph that show that females do benefit, but those results were ignored, and for, there was no sense in just pooling those ones. Plus, he also neglected to... He was dealing with mutant fruit flies, right, with things, awful, horrible names like no-eyes and bristlehead and tinyhead and... You know, he himself admitted that some of these could be deathly, these mutations, if they were in doubled up. And of course, you, you, the, the double mutations were part of the experiment, but he didn't take that into effect. So the results were just completely skewed. And the papers that she's written on this, my researcher spoke to a very senior professor at Oxford in the course of the research for this book to find out if Goati's papers were taught when they teach Bateman's paradigm because, you know, they should at least be part of the argument. And he, she was told, no, they're considered very political perspectives, so they're not on the syllabus. One of those things where it's not political if you agree with it, but it's political if you disagree with the person who's saying it. You know, it's and, and science should be above that, but we're all human, apparently not. I can tell that this winds you up. It winds me up just listening to it and reading about it. What you're doing in the book, really, is then going through... So obviously, you know, decades on, there have been lots of studies of lots of animal species. And what you have done in the book is go through lots of different examples of lots of different species to pick apart whether it's true this is a universal trait or whether it's sometimes or never or always. So let's get to some of those specific examples because they are, I mean, the animal kingdom is permanently entertaining, full of things that are just bonkers if you take a narrow view of what life should be. So let's start with female hyenas. And this business of how do you even tell from the external genitalia? I mean, to anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you're sensitive about discussions of genitalia, you might want to do something else for the next, well, rest of the podcast, really, because they come into this a lot. <laughs> but female hyenas, tell us about female hyenas. Lots of the females in my book blow apart standard binary expectations. So then the hyena is a great example because if you have a male hyena and a female hyena in front of you, well, good luck with trying to tell them apart because... 
it's incredibly difficult. The females are actually bigger and more aggressive than males. Not always, but often. And they're dominant. And they have what appears to be male genitalia. They have a an eight-inch... It's referred to as a pseudo-penis, and it just really annoys me, that terminology. I'm calling it a super clitoris now because I just think it's even the terminology for these things is annoying. So, yeah, she has an eight-inch super clitoris and what look like testicles, furry testicles, and they're actually where her labia have, have fused. She doesn't have an external vagina at all. In fact, she's the only mammal who permanently doesn't have a vagina. There are others that where it closes up at various times of the year. And, and she has to give birth through her clitoris, actually. And this arrangement is, is quite extraordinary. She even gets erections, actually. They have, they, the female hyena has erectile tissue, and those erections are used in greeting ceremonies. Females will sniff each other's erections. There are a lot of females in the animal kingdom who have what are described as pseudopenises. I don't like calling them that. See, super clitorises, which look like penises. It's, you know, you find it a lot in the prosimians, lemurs, and the other monkeys, moles, common garden moles all sorts of uh, meerkats there's a lot of females and and it tends to go with female dominance and is a result of females being exposed in the womb to a lot of testosterone actually which is another thing is it you know testosterone is is not an exclusively male hormone by any means it's there's a lot of females that are swilling with the stuff although interestingly with the hyenas the female adult hyenas that for a long time were thought to be sort of powered by testosterone more, more than males they actually have less testosterone it's it's just this sort of key part during development that um gives them this sort of what appears to look like male genitalia. In fact, they look so similar that there was a paper written in the 1970s that said the only way to tell a male and female apart was by, I quote, palpation of the scrotum, which, you know, seems a sort of a... Brave, I would have thought. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly, famous for its bone-crushing bite. It's not something I might just take a guess and go 50-50. I'll just, I'll just guess on that one. Well, so the point here with the hyenas is that, I mean, straight away, these myths about submissiveness and males kind of making, running around and making all the decisions about who gets to do what, you know, that, that just doesn't apply in this case. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, tell a female hyena that she's needs to be passive and submissive and she'll laugh in your face after she's bitten it off. I mean, she's, <laughs> she's a formidable beast. In wild populations, they are almost always, uh, there's a female in charge, very occasionally the son of the previous highest matriarch um, also has very high status, but, um, but generally females are in charge. Again, it's not that unusual. I mean, amongst lemurs, I went to Madagascar, of the 111 species of lemur, 90% of those are female dominant. And they're like the hyena, they are aggressively dominant in a kind of female version of the patriarchal dominance. You know, they're, they're aggressive. You know, in the case of lemurs, I saw females be beating up males who dared take their sunbathing spot or didn't let them eat first you know so so they're, they're very much they're very much aggressively dominant over males but interestingly in a lot of cases that is unacceptable or is unaccepted and the female dominance gets contested and then gets caught up in semantics of oh no it's not female dominance it's female feeding priority or the males are still in charge it's still like something that's really hard for it to be accepted, even in zoological circles. Sp 
sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. It's clearly a threatening concept, and and this threat comes from the females getting to choose. I mean, when I when I, well, that was what I took away from your book that it's it's this question of can a female choose what she does rather than being bossed around? And you know the examples you describe, and I don't know how normal they are, but there are definitely male scientists who are exceptionally resistant to a female being able to choose what happens. And it's such a threatening thing. And the, the, the idea that it's a hyena, you know, it's, it's not saying anything about human society and yet humans feel threatened by it. And that seems to be very telling. I have to say, I spoke with Franz Duval about this, who's a brilliant primatologist and also a very liberal thinker. I mean, he studied bonobos for years. So, you know, which are the, they're a, a matriarchal society. Again, they're female dominant. That was contested for a long time. But um, he said in his experience as a man who's, who's put these, he said it's never female scientists who are resistant to these ideas. It's always um, male. And he told me this story about he was giving a lecture once about the bonobos and um, there was a German scientist, very senior um, scientist in the in the audience who sort of put his hand up at the end and said, what's wrong with these males? You know, it was like horrified by, by this idea that these males were being dominated by these. In the case of the bonobos, it's a female sisterhood that have overthrown the patriarchy by ecstatic same-sex frottage. So it's slightly, they're, they're not as sort of aggressively dominant as the as the hyenas and lemurs, but they do dominate the males. And, and he, he was kind of like, I don't understand what isn't wrong with the, with the males. You know, they're having lots of sex. They're living in a nice, peaceful society. You know, what's not to like? You know, but yeah, you're right. It's like a comfort blanket, I feel, for a lot of men, this idea that they are intrinsically dominant and that's the nice 
story that, that, that they want to perpetuate. We can't. There's so many examples in your book. But um, one of the interesting things was that, you know, this we've been talking about external behaviour, I guess, a little bit just then. You know, what do females actually do? Where do they go? Who do they poke with a stick? That kind of thing um, or bite. And one of the things, and I, I knew a little bit of this, but not, nothing on the scale of what you wrote about, which is how much control is on the inside and particularly opossums, which you write have two vaginas and a temporary third one, I think, which sounds complicated. And there's this whole thing about the anatomy of the clitoris, which is very understudied in humans, but even more understudied possibly in nature. So just this sort of internal control that the males can't see, can't tell what's going on in there. What is going on in there? Basically, for centuries, zoologists or taxonomists in particular have been very aware of the huge diversity of penis structure. Right? And, it, and it's something that some species, you can only tell them apart by their penises, that they have like spines or curly-whirly or all sorts of accoutrements that make them really identifiable. They're clearly something that's heavily selected upon. But it seems that no one's ever looked inside females to see what's going on there. They just assume that females are these passive tubes. There was a lock and key theory, which was the idea that it was, it was a fit that was going on. But, but Patricia Brennan, she looked into, in particular, ducks. So ducks very famously have these very long penises, uh, in some cases, the Argentinian lake duck. It's actually, I think it's almost a third longer than the body when it's fully extended. And it, it lives inside the cloaca. There's obviously birds, and traditionally we think of not having penises. So they both, male and female, have this multipurpose hole called the cloaca. And the penis is, is stored inside the cloaca. And then lymph fluid is pumped into it. And in the case of um, the duck, it sort of shoots out at 75 miles an hour, like a sort of sinewy party hooter at great speed. And it's this long sort of curly-whirly thing, right? And many papers were written eulogising about this extraordinary organ. And it was assumed that basically it was a result of uh, male competition because ducks are known for coercive sex. Basically, females either choose a mate through a sort of elaborate courtship routine and beautiful feathers and whatever, or they are unfortunately the males that don't get chosen sort of gang up and then will, will as a group, coerce females. And if you've ever seen it, I have in the park. It's a really, really distressing thing to see because it's horrible. Females being horribly attacked. And then also on top of that, as far as evolution is concerned, she's losing the choice of who fertilizes her egg. And of course, that's the bottom line. That's the most important thing. So in this situation, the female duck really is a terrible loser. But Brennan, Patricia Brennan worked out that, which well, actually looked inside the female and found an equally labyrinthine system that's full of blind pockets and, and, and cul-de-sacs. And so she worked out in the most ingenious way by taking a load of prosthetic duck vaginas to a duck farm and actually testing them out. She found that when the, you know, because it really is like a party hooter, that it would, it, it would get caught in the blind pockets and then unfurl backwards on itself. And so if it was a coercive situation, the female could keep keep her vagina in this labyrinthine trap and the males won't get in to be able to fertilise the egg. Whereas if it's her chosen mate, then she can open up the lumen of her vagina and because... Um, you know, because she can lay an egg, she has the ability to do that, open it wide and allow her chosen mate to fertilise. And of course, this accounts for why in, in the case of ducks, coercive sex only accounts for very few um, fertilizations. 
whereas it's it's more commonplace than, than you'd expect with the amount of fertilization. So that was just like this amazing story of just because we haven't got the data, we didn't understand about females. We hadn't actually bothered looking, but they just they're victims. Do you know what I mean? But actually we have this unseen power, you know, and, and actually all the stuff that goes on around fertilization is is fascinating because there's still so much that we don't know. So I mean, I didn't even know this, but he talks about sperm race as if it's a sort of like epic kind of hundred meter sprint that's going on inside a female, that the male's involved in this sperm race, you know. And actually, it turns out that the male sperm, in almost all cases, doesn't have the ability to, to actually travel without female assistance. And so there's room there for, for cryptic female choice and for females influencing who wins the race. And in the case of humans, there was a paper that was published quite recently, which suggests that the egg may choose in the end anyway. So all of these really sort of basic things that we, we, we think of as out of female control, actually females have a lot more control and power in, in hidden ways. Well, the, the variety is definitely fascinating. I mean, I would recommend this book to anyone, but especially just to be amazed by the variety. So one of the things that comes from that is you mentioned um, forced sex in some species, but there, there's also one of the other myths that comes down from Aristotle and Darwin is this chaste females, the idea that the female is basically sort of trying not to have sex because it'll cause her problems of having, you know, to be pregnant for a long time and all that kind of thing. And the males are sort of, like you said at the beginning, chasing it all over the place. So there are a lot of females, even in monogamous, superficially monogamous species who have, where the females, they are definitely having a lot of sex. The idea of, of female chastity is, is something that is, is, is really a kind of Victorian invention and females are being coy. But in many species, we now know females are actively soliciting sex and they're, and they're being just as strategic in, in their sexual behaviour as males are. So if you say the male strategy is to have sex with as many females as possible, well, in many cases, I'm not saying all, but in many cases that we now understand the female strategy is also to mate with multiple males for a number of reasons. For example, with songbirds, for a long time, songbirds, you see a, a male and a female, they build a nest together and they raise the chicks and they, they appear to be the very epitome of monogamy. In fact, I think there was there was one great quote from a from a sort of Victorian reverend who has also wrote this ornithology book who who encouraged his flock to be thou more like the dunnock, you know, because uh, this male and female leading this sort of lovely m monogamous domesticity. Well, in um, the 1980s, Patricia Goati again, who was the first one to do it because she's amazing, she thought she'd use this brand new technology of DNA fingerprinting in order to see who the, the, the fathers were of a, on a clutch of eggs. And she found that a clutch of eggs had multiple fathers. And so the female was obviously mating with several different males. And this rocked the world of ornithology. Um, but when she presented her information, her data at a conference, she was told by the ornithological establishment that the females must have been raped because that was the only explanation, of course. The females couldn't possibly have been soliciting sex. So then it took several other ornithologists to put radio trackers on female songbirds and, and track them over many seasons to make sure that their data was 100% watertight, didn't get um, shot down in flames as soon as they presented it. And they found that, yes, indeed, females were actively soliciting sex from, from their neighbours. Now, 
to Patricia Goati, this makes complete sense. Why put all your eggs in one basket? And mating with multiple males gives you greater genetic diversity. That's going to be a good thing. Then there are other reasons why females would do that. But that sort of sparked what's been called a polyandry revolution and that we now understand that there are many species where the females have a strategy of mating multiply. But still, I think this idea that males are promiscuous and females are chaste is, is something that is really, really persistent. In popular culture as well, I mean, I watched, I don't know whether you watched recently, the mating game that was on BBC. It was the sort of big Attenborough before last. I was just like screaming at the TV the whole time. And, you know, there's species that I've written about in my book and the story they're telling is, oh, the males are fighting and then they're mating with lots of females. And, and no mention that the females involved are actually strategically mating with multiple males. Females are just not given that agency, which is really frustrating. You made the point at the start about the sort of dangers in anthropomorphizing. But one of the things, one of the uh, points you made, and I can't remember which species was connected to it, but I thought it was a really interesting idea, was that the consequence of the behavior you're, you're describing is that the men, males can't be sure about paternity because they don't know what the females have been up to while they weren't looking. And you made the point that patriarchy, and I assume you were referring to human societies, might arise because men are terrified that if you let the females go and do their thing, then they'll be in control and they'll go off and do all these things. And you know that's a threatening thing. And is it reasonable to see that as a something to inform the way we see the modern world? This is where I feel out of my depth because I'm not an anthropologist. So I sort of, I feel uncomfortable about drawing because I'm so critical of evolutionary psychologists. I just, I'm loath to, to fall into that trap myself. But so I'm not going to answer that. I'm sorry, Helen. But yes, I agree. It would seem that, you know, as Sarah Blafferhurdy, who is an anthropologist, has said, it's interesting that human male control over female sexuality, and it takes many forms. It takes the form of pejorative language, clitorectomy, you know, actually removing our sexual pleasure to try and remove our drive, all these means to control females um, and and their sexuality. And that, you know, it, it, she, she it's her feeling that our ancestors mated multiply and that paternity confusion was was part of the mix, basically. So that hominid, um, hominid ancestors lived in small groups and, and females would mate with multiple males and, and males would multiple males would, would care for young as well. Because that's what you find, as, as I say, that there are genetic benefits for a female mating with multiple males, but there's also paternity confusion prevents infanticide, but it also encourages males to care for infants or, or, or offspring that, that aren't necessarily theirs. So, um, so yes, it would seem that, 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 that you, if, you, if you talk to Sarah Blafferhurdy, then she would be in agreement with you for sure. I can, I can see why. It, it, it is, it is, you do have to be very careful about drawing conclusions, but it, I thought it was a very interesting idea. I wanted to talk about there is one species where everybody, if they thought about it for long enough, would, would think that the female was in charge, and that is bees, because we all know about a queen bee. No one's ever met a king bee, as far as I know. It's all about the queen bee. And I did not know that there are there's one species of mammals, the naked mole rat, that's sort of got a similar structure to its society. I, I had no idea. How do you get a, a queen naked mole rat? How does that work? Genetically, it's not the same system that there's there's haploid and diploid individuals. So so it's not genetically the same as the social insects, but the structure of the society is the same. So you have uh, naked mole rats are these extraordinary looking creatures and they're completely bald, pink, with these ever-growing teeth. Um, 
And um, they live in colonies of up to 300 underground, probably never see the light of day. And they, they dig for tubers and it's um, and they can only live by by living as a group because tubers are hard to find. So you've got to have lots of na- naked mole rats gnawing away all day long in order to find the tubers. And the way that their society is the most extreme version of what's called cooperative breeding. And so much so that it, it's considered to be a eusocial system, the same as, as you find in the social insects. And so you, in a colony of 300, there will only be one breeding queen. And she will have won that title through fighting other females and and become the the breeding queen. She chooses two or three male mates. And then the rest of the colony will never breed. 99.9% of the colony will never breed. Their job is to support her royal reproductiveness, basically. So to, to, to look after the babies, to dig for tubers, to clean, you know, they have various different roles. Um, Unlike um, the social insects where the roles tend to be fixed with the naked mole rats, they tend to to switch around the jobs that they do. But But they will never breed because they are, their reproduction is suppressed. They don't even go through puberty. And this is just incredible. So Basically, we don't know exactly why that is, but Chris Falks, who's the scientist at Queen Mary College in London, who's written most widely on this or published most widely on naked mole rats, and he's got a breeding number of breeding colonies in an incredibly hot cupboard on the top floor of, of Queen Mary College. He thinks it's through constant low-level bullying. The female, basically, she's she's not like a social insect queen who just lies around in the royal chamber and and pumps out eggs. In this case, the queen is on this relentless royal tour where she's walking around the colony and just shoving her subjects or biting them, just low-level aggression the whole time. And it's this aggression that suppresses their reproduction. They think the hormone prolactin's involved in it um, and they're ongoing experiments to, to get to the bottom of that. It's not uh, an enviable uh, existence <laughs> uh, necessarily, but um, but remarkably effective. And as a result, you see her reproductive, she can put all of her energy into reproducing. She can have litters of up to 27 have been recorded at a time, which is really astonishing for a mammal. And there was one um, female that in 24 years, she had over 900 pups, which is an extraordinary... She had time for that while running around shoving everybody in order to stay boss, which is the impressive It's amazing. <laughs> it's, a, it's really amazing. But also what's fascinating about this is that it also goes back to that thing that we were talking about at the very beginning, this ba- this idea of Bateman's paradigm, which suggests that the, there's that not very much variation in females. And, and if you think about the top, um, I spoke to Tim Clutton Brock, amazing, legendary zoologist who studied sexual selection in many different species, including red deer. And he said the most sort of prolific stag that he ever documented only ever sired around 25 babies. Whereas this is a female that's mothered 900. It's a huge amount of variation. So uh, again, just doesn't fit the model. It's clear that as a generalisation, this business, this idea that nature says that females are always submissive, chaste, 
too busy doing the washing up to be doing anything interesting, basically. Just it, it's not a universal rule. What you uncover is actually for, for all that we scientists spend our time trying to avoid biases, we still need to keep working on that and keep listening to other opinions. And I was just wondering, so when you spent time writing this book and thinking about all this, when you walk out then into our society, and I recognise that you have to be careful drawing conclusions, but you still walk out into our human society of animals as a as a female, how has it changed your perspective? Or has it changed your perspective on human society at all? Oh, I very much notice how these ideas permeate popular culture now. We just take it for red. These ideas that sort of originated with Darwin of these sex role differences are very much alive and kicking in, in, in human culture. And I, I spend a lot of my time now saying that that's, <laughs> that's not the case. But I think, you know, I, I think there was one example that I found. I, I mean, certainly at the moment, let's just take where we are at the moment. And we're just caught in this horrific war. It's so bad. It feels like we're being destroyed by the patriarchy, doesn't it? There's just a sort of like terrifying man and it's this sort of awful war. And, and that harks back to we're told, you know, that humans are closest cousins the, the chimpanzees you know they're also patriarchal and warlike and you know somehow this is sort of burnt into our dna that we we have to follow this system and and that's a very depressing thing really if you're if you're well, it's, and that's a very depressing thing but um as part of the research i found out about the bonobos which are the equally closest relatives and and they have a very harmonious society that's very peaceful they don't fight with their neighbors at dinner time, at meal times, food is shared, and the females have formed this, have managed to dominate males by by forming this very close sisterhood where any natural competition that might occur within individuals has been removed because the females are are having sex with each other. Um, and I'm not suggesting that we all start having sex with each other. I don't think that's the answer. But realizing the power of the sisterhood and of females being collaborative or just males and females being being collaborative and 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 not competitive with one another and actually how our society isn't necessarily destined to be patriarchal and at the moment i'm just praying that we could all be a bit more bonobo on this planet that is a great place to finish. Thank you very much, Lucy. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. That was Lucy Cook, the author of Bitch, A Revolutionary Guide to Sex, Evolution and the Female Animal. And the book is out now from Penguin. You've been listening to the Intelligence Squared podcast and I'm Helen Chersky. Thank you for listening.